that's about that time, guys. So why don't we get into our little Bible study. We have completed the book of Romans, as you know, I said in the email, and we're now looking into the conclusion of the book. First part of that conclusion, I titled The Purposes of Paul, 14 through 21. So the conclusion of the book, written to believers in the city of Rome, Lots of culture, lots of different things in the city of Rome, Circus Maximus, kind of more athletic or entertainment-oriented. It was a entertainment culture, so the believers there probably experienced things similar to what we experience in our culture. And uh, obviously, from a spiritual perspective, experienced many of the things that we desire to experience in Christ. So... We've looked at the major portion of the book, the doctrinal portion, and in that doctrinal portion, first 11 chapters, essentially, after a long introduction, dealing with God's righteousness, how we enter into and how we experience here and now God's righteousness, and then he applies that righteousness of God in particular situations, particular environments, you might say. And then he gets into the conclusion, which is a long conclusion, 11% of the book. So it's not just a few verses like you have at the end of Ephesians or Colossians or other books that Paul wrote or any other books, but uh, 47 verses of conclusion. I've broken into four parts. Purposes, 14 through 21. Plans, 22 through 33. Personal greetings, 16. Almost all of chapter 16, at least to verse 24. And then we have praise from uh, 25 through 27. So that's the ultimate conclusion of the book. Even though we saw chapter 5, Verse 13 was something of a summary, kind of a conclusion, a prayer that Paul prays. Prays that we may, I summarized it as that we may experience, or at least the Romans might experience the abundant life. We looked at that last week. In fact, we spent most of our time in just that verse 13 and saw that uh, there was a lot of depth to it. So today I'd like to focus on the first part of this paragraph dealing with the purposes of Paul. So in the conclusion, purposes beginning in verse 14, and one of the purposes is to commend the believers. And he has some, uh, you might even say he's giving them a grade. He's commending them with some of the highest compliments that you can pay to a fellow believer. So we'll look at that verse, beginning in verse 14. And that verse gives us that commendation. Beginning in verse 14, and concerning you. So now he's kind of getting personal. In fact, in this chapter and a half, it's very personal, not only in terms of Paul himself, but personal in terms of the audience that he's writing to. He will actually introduce us to some of the specific individuals, particularly in chapter 16. So concerning you, transitioning into a conclusion, my brethren. So right up front, 
this book is written to believers, and he acknowledges that, not only here, but we've seen this before, and we'll see that he uses the word brethren later on as well. In other words, the relationship, an equal relationship. He doesn't address himself as an apostle here, but one as a brother. In other words, on a a same level, if you will. In Christ, we are all at the same level. We all are sinners in need of salvation, Paul included. So he addresses them as brethren. It's also a term of intimacy. In other words, a close relationship. The closest relationship we can have are within the family, husband and wife, and then uh, brothers and sisters within the family. Very close relationship. And part of this is because of who he's writing to. He had never visited the uh, city of Rome or the churches, at least. He may, I don't know if there was a time that he was in Rome before. We don't have a record of that. So we also will see in the plans that he plans to visit them. But for now, they're not as familiar as, let's say, the Ephesians, where he founded the church, or Colossae, or Philippians, where he had more intimate and close ties with them. The Romans, they're a little bit more distant. He wasn't the founder. In fact, we'll talk a little bit about that. So in this conclusion, some of the high points, some of the things that we can learn from and some of the things that make it valuable for us to look into these verses so we don't want to skim over them. I gave you an overview last time and something of a review of that in that chart I showed you there. But we have the nature of Paul's ministry, and this gives us insight not only into apostolic ministry, but it's actually the nature of Paul's ministry is such that uh, we participate in that. So we can learn a lot about ministry from the little notes of description that Paul gives us concerning his ministry. So these are very personal passages that give us insight into Paul himself and Paul's ministry. Anyone remember this photograph? In fact, some of you may be in the photograph down at the lower right-hand corner there. Anyone remember this photograph? I was just going to ask who it's supposed to be. Well, it's the Apostle Paul. And I was wondering, I don't know if we have anybody that went on the trip today signed in. We may not. Is that the, the church outside the wall? No. no. Which church? Well, with Paul as prominent outside of the entryway, this, yeah. would, this would be the Church of St. Paul. Oh, of course. Of course. And where would it be? Is that part Vatican churches there? No. No. No, we visited this. Yeah, it's outside the wall. Yeah, outside of the main... Okay. Part of Rome. Yeah. It would be in the city of Rome, and some believe that he's buried there, if you remember. But yeah. uh, I'll show you a couple of other photographs of the inside, but this is the outside with Paul prominent in the front. Yeah, it was a, it's a very, very beautiful church. Huge, too. It's yeah. a, a more reachable church than some of the others that were stuffed with uh, all sorts of art. Yes. Well, this one has considerable art as well, as you will see. Yeah in some of the other photos. So we have the nature of Paul's ministry. We also have the main focus, which 
we can learn a lot in terms of the focus that Paul had. And anyone want to venture a suggestion as to what was the focus of Paul's ministry? You can discern it from the use of a particular word that occurs several times in this conclusion. Now, it also appears in the introduction, but we're going to come across it several times again. Anyone want to suggest a... Gentiles? Well, that, in a way, yeah, that you're correct in that. In fact, part of the nature of it is an outreach to the Gentiles, but the focus, you're on the right track, is the gospel to the Gentiles. But the word that I was looking for is the, the gospel message. So we'll uh, pick up the importance of the gospel message from uh, this conclusion as well. And there's lots of things we can apply in terms of that focus as well. In fact, it should be our focus, not that uh, depending on our spiritual gift, not that we're always involved in evangelism, but we should never be negligent of the gospel, no matter what our spiritual gifts or ministry may be. So that's his focus, is the gospel message, the good news of what Christ has done for us. He also gives us a few hints concerning the extent of his ministry and the plans that he has in terms of expanding that ministry. He mentions very shortly here in the passage, Illyricum, and he speaks in terms of his outreach as far as Illyricum. Now, we don't have a, another record other than that little note that we have here in the conclusion of the book of Romans. But apparently, some, sometime in some of his missionary journeys, he ventured into that area. So we'll talk about the extent of Paul's ministry. And then he desired fourth, to go to Spain, didn't he? Well, he'll mention that as well, which is beyond, yeah, which is further. That's why I call it the extent of his ministry. We don't know for sure whether he made it that far, but yes, he uh, desires. We'll talk about that when we talk about the plans of Paul. So the nature of his ministry, we gain insight into what ministry is all about. It's focus, what the focus of our ministry should be, at least to some extent, and the extent of Paul's ministry, which might give us some applications in terms of outreach and uh, stretching ourselves in terms of how far we may be able to minister as well. But the fourth one is also the source of power or the power of the ministry, what is behind it, and that gives us insight into what what we need to appropriate in terms of the ministry that uh, we have and the fact that God has called us to minister to other people. So that's the Apostle Paul and some of the highlights of this conclusion that he gives us. And that gives you a shot of the inside of that church, quite extensive. To give you a perspective, if you look in the distance, you can see people or at least one individual there towards the middle. Notice the size of that individual. That door, probably higher than in the far back there. Oh, I don't know, 30 foot tall, 25, somewhere in that range from the perspective of the people. There's another individual right before it. So quite massive, quite impressive. And uh, again, this is an old church commemorating hey. the Apostle Paul. Go ahead. Is this what it looked like 
back then, or was this built no, up? This over, is this is over later. No, this is not. This okay. doesn't date to the first century. This is later, kind of a commemoration of Paul. I'm not. I don't remember. Monies, do you remember the dating of when this was constructed, or maybe you might look it up and Google it or something. But uh, no, this is a little bit not first century. This is much later. It's beautiful. Yeah, it, it's just was, just was curious. Yeah, very beautiful. I think the I think the blue plastic chairs are a giveaway to the fact that it's not. <laughs> well, oh my gosh! Well, that, that's definitely that's definitely an add-on. I think. <laughs> Yeah, that could, be, that could be uh, somewhat more recent, but but yeah. uh, the church is quite considerably older than those plastic chairs. <laughs> so anyway, just a quick picture and a reminder of the Apostle Paul and his importance from the building and a reminder for those of you that uh, were on uh, the last Israel trip. So Paul goes on, and concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Now, this is kind of a broad term, but along with the other ones, this probably looks at a very high compliment in terms of their character and particularly their spiritual maturity. You yourselves are full of goodness. In other words, they were very evidently expressive of their faith in terms of kindness and reaching out and meeting people's needs. So the main focus would be godly character, I think. Very high compliments. Now, you might ask yourself, why would he express himself in this way? And it may be related because, remember, he did not found this church in fact, this commendation of godly character, goodness, another photograph that gives you a perspective looking in the other direction, that's the altar. In other words, looking from the back to the front. And again, you have the perspective of that one person there, perspective on the size of the columns there. Huge, huge church. So we have godly character. Now, part of the reason that Paul is so complimentary. I think, in fact, it's going to explain a little bit more in verse 15. We'll talk some more about that. But remember, he did not found this church, so he's not flattering them. I think he has reports, and I think he's familiar with some of the individuals, and from the reports and from what he knows of them, he thinks that they are, in general, a relatively mature group of people. So he commends them, gives them a grade, you might say, and expresses his uh, appreciation for, for goodness, so godly character. And that kind of reminds me that our group, uh, I don't say it much, but I appreciate you all. In fact, uh, when people ask me, particularly when I'm out of town or somewhere else, and they ask me what I do and I describe the main thing I do is this Bible study that we meet on Sunday afternoons now. And in describing our group, and this was certainly true when we were at Grace Church, those of us from that background that were still were there, some of you are still there, but I um, freely 
praised you guys. And, and at the time, I felt like our group was composed of probably the most mature people in the church. In fact, I would go beyond that and say that uh, I don't know of another group in Albuquerque that had the level of maturity and the involvement in ministry and the things that uh, some of you obviously display in terms of godly character. So that's, that's something of what Paul is doing, is praising and giving them compliments concerning godly character. And I do appreciate uh, this group and you all, and I don't think it's flattery if it's true. I think it's an accurate statement that uh, I think most of you are far more mature than the typical Sunday school or the typical church group. And as a result, it causes me to be very thankful for, for all of you. And a second thing, which is also very important, filled with all knowledge. Now, he's not talking about, you know, lots of PhDs in this group. He's not talking about necessarily worldly knowledge. But in this context, I think he's focusing on biblical knowledge. In other words, they had a solid and an extensive knowledge of Scripture. In other words, they were grounded in God's Word. So not only did they have godly character, but in fact, the basis of that godly character was the biblical foundation that they had. So they knew the Word of God. Now, in verse 15, he's going to talk about reminding them. In other words, he's aware that they know probably all of the doctrines that he's recording in the book of Romans. And he explains in verse 15, we'll see that he is simply reminding them of things that they already know. So they are a group that have been taught, that uh, know the word of God. And he says filled. In fact, the word there, the word filled there has is in the perfect tense and giving the impression that uh, they have a background of Bible teaching and and Bible knowledge, and Bible study, and the perfect tense. In other words, this is an ongoing experience in their experience as well. So filled with all knowledge. So not only do they have godly character, all goodness, and by the way, he modifies that by the word there in terms of uh, expanding full of goodness. So it's not just kind of a casual statement, but uh, an emphasis on their godly character and their biblical grounding full of knowledge as well. And that knowledge translates into outward involvement, able also to ad admonish one another. And interestingly, that word admonish, it uh, uh, we could look at it from our perspective, and when you think of the ability that that word captures, you can think of counseling. In fact, the word itself, nutheteo, some counselors have taken from that Greek word and describe what they do in terms of nuthetic counseling from the Greek word here. In other words, it has the ability to convey wisdom, as some of the verses, the other verses that uh, relate. I should have uh, put together a slide, but uh, would someone care to look at Colossians one twenty eight? 
and someone else look up uh, Colossians 3.16. These, these also contain the same word. So it's not just correction, which the English word admonish or re- sometimes we think of admonishing as a, at least a rebuke, but it has a lot of positives to it as well. And you might think of the ability to counsel, which would include warnings against the negative, but it would also include conveying of wisdom and right living, the right way to live. So it's a, it's a good word. And the Romans, from their godly character and maturity and from the knowledge that they have of the Bible, they are able to counsel other believers, younger believers, people that need to be uh, encouraged or counseled. So it's a counseling word. Anyone have uh, the Colossians? Somebody else might look up. I have Colossians 3.16. Okay. I have 1.28. Great. Someone else look up 1 Corinthians 4.14, a couple of other passages. Now, it doesn't occur frequently. It only occurs eight times, but these three passages seem to bring out some of the uh, broader sense of the idea of admonishment. Uh, Denise, you got uh, Colossians 1.28? That was Laurel. Oh, was that Laurel? Laurel? Okay, sorry. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, see the broadness of that word? It's just not negative. Admonishing and teaching, in other words, broader than just the negative aspect of it. In all wisdom, in other words, practical guidance, encouragement along the lines of right paths, right living, and ultimately with the goal to present every man complete in Christ. So counseling can be uh, basically discipleship would be another word to describe it. So it is very broad and it has the ability of moving people forward in the spiritual walk. And this is a continuous activity. The Romans, from their maturity, from their biblical grounding, are able to reach out and encourage the body of Christ, particular individuals that need to be moved forward. Who had Colossians 3.16? Denise. All right, Denise. Word of Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Okay, so admonishing with psalms. They're not always exhortational. They're not always, they're, they're encouraging, but they're, they're broader than just simply the idea of admonishment that you and I generally have from the English word. So it's a broader word than simply admonition, even though that's the way it's translated in most of the translations. And again, coupled with all wisdom, including teaching and admonishing one another. So Colossians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 4.14. Anyone get that one? I got that. I got it. Uh, Who is the first one? Go ahead. Sandy. Sandy, go ahead. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Okay, warning. Yeah, warn you as beloved children. So it includes the negative. It includes the idea of warning and 
the negative aspects, but it also includes a lot of the positives as well. So that's you want to listen to one twenty-eight of Colossians in the today's English version. Go ahead. So we preach Christ to everyone with all possible wisdom. We warn and teach them all in order to bring each one into God's presence as a mature individual in union with Christ. Okay, that doesn't use the word admonishment, but in there is a broader translation, and it gives you the bigger picture of the word admonishment. Good. So... What we have are three characteristics that Paul commends, very high praise, godly character, biblical grounding, and a ministry orientation. In other words, they have an outreach. So this, you might even say, is a picture of Christian maturity, admonishing, or the ability to be able to minister to others in the spiritual gift along the lines of counseling and discipleship. So very high praise here, very high commendation. So he begins this conclusion with this purpose to commend the Romans, and now he's going to get into the purpose that he has in terms of writing, that they be clear why he writes them a letter. And He says, but I have written very boldly to you on some points. And again, back to what I was saying earlier, I think he uses the word very boldly here in order to not only be understood uh, why he's writing, but uh, this is somewhat characteristic of Paul as well, but especially since These are people that he was not the founder of their church. He was not as familiar with uh, many of the people in the congregation, even though there are some that he had some familiarity, and he expresses that in chapter 16. So why does he speak boldly? He was not their pastor, if you will, or their elder, or one of their leaders, and uh, he didn't have uh, much fellowship with them. So Why does he speak so boldly? And I think this is just part of Paul's pattern. And had he visited in person, face to face, he would have spoken somewhat boldly. And we don't need to look these up, all of them, but uh, let's look up a couple of them. Notice from the very beginning of Paul's ministry, would somebody look up Acts 9.27? And while we're looking at it, We might look at 1346. We won't look at the other ones, but you see the same word. He uses the same word as what we have already seen in uh, 14.3 and in 19.8. Anyone want to do 9.27? I've got it. Katie? Yes. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Okay. And the context is, remember, this is shortly after his conversion. So Paul starts off right off the bat speaking boldly. Remember, he was converted on the way to Damascus and then he continues the journey and apparently had some ministry there. So this is kind of characteristic of Paul. 
So even though he was not face-to-face with them, in his writing, he uh, displays the same bold characteristic. 1346, just one more, and I'll let you look up 14.3 and 19.8 on your own. I have 13.3 if you want it. Okay, is that Connie? Yeah. We'll, we'll eventually have Steve read. Well, why don't you uh, read the next one, Steve? Connie, go ahead. 1346. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Okay, again, starts off the verse with speaking boldly. And you see the same thing in Iconium. And the same word, by the way, is also in 19.8. So this is characteristic of Paul, so he doesn't change even though he's not meeting with them face to face. So he's writing very boldly on some points. Now, if you uh, read through the book of Romans, you might ask yourself, well, where do you find this bold attitude? Well, even though the word may not be evident in the book of Romans, even though it does occur. The the whole the concept of boldness, he is very bold, very direct, very clear, very methodical, you might even say, in laying out all of the major doctrines relating to receiving God's righteousness and or salvation. He lays out in great detail the lostness of all mankind in a very bold fashion, talking about the only way of salvation, so no compromise, no easing off or away from the gospel, only one way of receiving this righteousness. It's through finished work of Jesus Christ. We have the most detailed theology, so very bold, you might say, in uh, the presentation in the whole book of Romans. Even uh, when he talks about the relationship between Jew and Gentile in chapters 9 through 11, he makes some very bold statements that are nowhere else in all of the Bible. In fact, chapters 9 through 11 are very unique in all of the New Testament, and everything is set forth clearly, decisively, which you might say in a broad way is very boldly. And again, he says to so as to remind you, again, indicating that he's aware that they are biblically grounded enough. They know soteriology. They know these doctrines, maybe not to the depth that he writes. And maybe part of the reason that he writes in such depth is to make sure that uh, their soteriology is a biblical soteriology. And by the way, we need to make sure that we understand all of the the major doctrines, particularly the fundamental doctrines. We understand them clearly and precisely and are able to communicate them, and especially the doctrines relating to the gospel. We need to be very clear on it. And Paul is uh, reminding the Romans, reminding you again, acknowledging, even commending them by way of implication. He's not Uh, speaking down to them, but he is communicating as an apostle on the same level in order that uh, they would uh, not only have a refined and a detailed exposition of soteriology, 
but they would have a record that they can use to further their counseling ministry. So reminder, and because of the grace that was given me from God, this is a major theme throughout the book of Romans, the fact that we are undeserving in terms of receiving God's righteousness, but in this case, the, the grace that Paul acknowledges that all of us have received, but in terms of himself, the grace that was given to me or given me from God. So he feels obligated in terms of communicating this grace, even in the uh, conclusion here. So, and this is the foundation and part of the reasoning that he's writing, writing boldly because of the grace that was given me from God. So he's extending the ministry that he acknowledges is a ministry that is undeserved. Elsewhere, he calls himself the chief of sinners, and he constantly is reminded of himself and his persecuting of the church before Acts chapter 9 and the experience on the Damascus Road. So everything is from perspective of grace, from Paul's perspective, as he clearly indicates throughout the book of Romans. And that brings us to verse 16. And I put them both on the same slide. I like to put a whole sentence. So back to the first part, I have written the uh, main emphasis of this, the sentence is Paul's writing. Everything else is explaining something about it. And this writing kind of uh, flows out of this ministry of grace. And he's explaining a little bit of uh, how he viewed his ministry. And remember, this book is written to both Jew and Gentile. And he reminds us of that ministry that uh, not only began with the purpose of reaching the Gentiles, but if you study the book of Acts, you see that his pattern was to go to the synagogue, but he also had the Gentiles in mind. And in fact, his, he viewed his primary ministry was to Gentiles. But not only was the church at Rome or the churches at Rome composed of probably a majority of Gentiles, but there was a significant number of Jews as well. And the rest of verse 16 is almost written from a Jewish flavor, you might say. I'm going to highlight some of the words here. The Jewish believers at Rome, these words would remind them of their past Judaism because he's using essentially Jewish worship language here, sacrificial language. We'll see at the end of the verse there. But notice the words that Paul chooses in describing his ministry. Now, this is his ministry. And I think for the Jewish audience, he's basically awakening in their thinking. Paul has a Jewish ministry. In other words, he's not departing from the background that God raised him in. Now, it's transformed because of Christ, but it is related to what Jews would be familiar with. So not only is a ministry of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, part of the focus of, of the ministry, 
But notice the words that we have here. He's going to use different terms. The very first word, in fact, the first one there, to be a minister. It has this sacrificial idea behind it. The Greek word, leiturgas, you want to pronounce it there. And why don't we have, Steve, why don't you look up Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll have you read a verse there. But this is a word that's related to the sacrificial system. In fact, it's a word that's related to the functioning or the ministry of priests. So we'll look at that. We'll also see it, the particular word. Now, the word in its noun form only occurs five times, and we already encountered it in 13.6. Now, we won't read that verse, but let me remind you, remember chapter 13? talks about the believer needing to submit to the government, and he describes civil leaders using this same word. So we've already seen this word. And in order to emphasize the fact that even though you may have an unbeliever that will be occupying an office, in fact, he may even be an atheist, From God's perspective, God sovereignly is using him to accomplish things that uh, God wants to accomplish in uh, the government and within uh, nations itself. So the word is used to describe a civil leader, whether they be unbelievers or believers, using this Jewish concept of the functioning of like a priest offering a sacrifice. Now, did I have you read, uh, I, I think I told you, uh, uh, 10, 11. Why don't you read that one and then skip back to, since you'll be in Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 6, where the same word is used of Christ. But read Hebrews 10, 10, 11 first, verse 11. Okay. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Okay, the word ministering there, leiturgas. Same word that we have here in uh, Romans chapter 15. Now skip to 8.2, referring to the ministry of Christ. So this is an elevated ministry. From God's perspective, when God is using even an unbeliever, it uh, accomplishes spiritual purposes. 8.3, go ahead, Hebrews 8, or 8.2, Hebrews 8.2. Okay, I can, I'll read 3 also. Okay. Minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Okay, a minister in the sanctuary and ultimately it's a ministry of Christ. Now read verse six. It's a word related to leiturgas in Hebrews 8, 6. Okay, but now he has appointed a more excellent ministry. Ministry, there you by go. As much, there it is. Yep. By as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Okay, and the he there is capitalized referring to Christ himself. 
So this is a ministry from the Jewish perspective relating to the entire sacrificial system that would be focused at either the tabernacle in ancient times and or later the temple after Solomon uh, built the temple. So that's the word that is used in Romans. So it's spiritual service and or the worship that uh, would be related to the whole system that Jews would be familiar with. So these words would uh, immediately bring thoughts of the temple, thoughts of sacrifice, thoughts of worship, and primarily on a day of Sabbath or a day that uh, is designated to to worship, worship the Lord. Ray, I wanted to ask a question. I don't want to throw us off our train of thought. That's okay. But with regard to the fact that uh, there were uh, born-again Gentiles uh, that were being ministered to him here through this letter, is it not true that they used to go to temples of uh, debauchery and have priests there? As well, is there not some kind of a uh, correlation there somehow? No, this would be more of a contrast. The, they would have, there's different words that would be used. These are very Jewish, very related to sacrifice, not related to these pagan uh, temples and pagan worship involvement. So I think it'd be more of a contrast. And by the Thank way, you. yeah, by the way, we won't look up, but in Romans 12, 1, we, it's not the same word. It's another noun, but it's related to the same idea. And in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And notice all the similar words that we have here in verse 16. Acceptable to God which is your spiritual servant. And the last phrase here is latria, which is related to uh, the word that we have here, leiturgas. They're related terms, so they have the same connotation, and which is your spiritual service of worship. So it has the idea of worship, but it comes from this Jewish idea. And that same word is used elsewhere to refer to the spiritual idea, spiritual worship. But now it is in Romans 12, 1. Now it's in Christ. Now it is spiritual. That's why it's noted as spiritual worship. So it's to the same God and it's ministering to him. But now it's in terms of Christ and involved uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So very rich words. Now you don't get it, but in the English text, ministering as a priest, that phrase is one word in the Greek text, ministering as a priest, the gospel of Christ. So uh, you have to expand it to get the sense of the one Greek word that we have there. And the Greek word is minister as a priest. And you can see, those of you that know a little bit of Greek, I'm not sure I can pronounce it, hierurgeo, that first part, 
is a word that is related to the priest. In fact, the noun form of that first part of the, the word there, it's hard to pronounce. Those are the same letters that are used to describe a priest. So New American Standard translates it, minister as a priest. Now, I, I wish they had maybe used a different word because it kind of, in the English, you don't get the sense that it's, it's a different word in terms of the, the word minister there. But it's actually right. a different word. Right. Jeff? Yeah. Isn't that the word that's used to describe the, the Kohen in the Greek? Um, not sure. Maybe. The high priest, you mean? Yeah, the, the yeah, the actual the actual not the Levitical, but the smaller group, the Kohen, I think they were the, the, the higher ghettos. Yeah, I don't know. You'll have to look it up and give us more insight. Now the verb here it only occurs here. In other words, in the New Testament, the word only occurs here. Now, there's some noun forms that occur elsewhere in the New Testament. But what Paul is doing, I think, for his Jewish audience is just giving them words that would remind them of worship, proper worship, godly worship. But now in this context in Christ, and he's characterizing his ministry as now a new ministry, but it's not totally unrelated to what uh, Jews would be familiar with in the Old Testament. Obviously, Christ is the ultimate and final and only sacrifice, and the ministry and the involvement is spiritual, and there's not a ritual, and there's not an animal involved. So this is a uh, you might say a Christian worship description of the way that Paul ministers. So he's a minister like a, a priest. He's not calling himself a priest. He's not a priest. Remember, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's not a priest, but he has a ministry that has relationship and is similar because it's related to the God of the Old Testament, same God that now has fulfilled what uh, ancient Israel hoped for and anticipated. So to serve the gospel as a priest is the idea of the word here. Somebody was commenting hey, there. Hey, Steve? Ray. Steve? You know, uh, it just strikes me when you think of a priest, as we know a priest today, you think of somebody that you can't reach or somebody that sits way up high, but You've already covered this in verse 14, where he says, and concerning you, my brethren. Yep. So he doesn't consider himself Above. better than. And so that ties in nicely. Yep. In fact, I didn't intend to mention it, and we're almost out of time anyway, but the New Testament views all of us as priests, and none of us, well, I don't know, if any of you are related to the tribe of Levi, but none of us are from that tribe that I know of. And Paul was not from the tribe of Levi. But the New Testament view is all of us have a ministry of a priesthood. Right, the priesthood of believers. Yeah, the priesthood of believers in that we are the mediators, the instrument that God has chosen to carry out the gospel to the world. And 
there's a couple of passages, one of them in the book of Revelation that describes us as a kingdom of priests. And it refers to every born again believer. And Paul would include himself as a minister, as a priest or like a priest in uh, that uh, New Testament sense. And I think First Peter describes us in that way as well. So, and let's just conclude this, so that my offering of the Gentiles, notice sacrificial language in the words of minister, minister as a priest, and as a priesthood of the gospel. So we deliver the good news that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And here, Paul is offering the Gentiles. In other words, he is viewing them as giving them up to God in terms of an offering. So we have another word there. I don't don't highlight it, but offering of the Gentiles. Again, this whole sacrificial language here that every Jew would be awakened. Paul is a minister along the lines of things that they would be familiar with. And then he says there to conclude the verse is may become acceptable. And remember, every animal sacrifice had to be an animal that was acceptable. It could not be the worst of the flock, had to be the best, could not have any defects, and it would be protected, and it would be an acceptable sacrifice that would be brought and offered to God. And the Gentiles, maybe they're acceptable, only on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. And if that wasn't clear enough, the last little phrase, sanctified or set apart, that animal sacrifice was set apart, protected, and then brought on that Sabbath and given to the priest to be offered on the altar, set apart, the idea sanctified. And in this case, he's talking about in Christ, we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made acceptable by the Holy Spirit, set apart by the Holy Spirit, cleanse. So the finished work of Christ in cleansing. Now, this is a positional sanctification in that positionally we are totally set apart, but it's by the Holy Spirit himself. So lots of imagery here, lots of uh, Jewishness to that verse 16. Uh, Sharon? Yes, I thought it was interesting that he says, uh, my offering of the Gentiles. So he ministers to them, and they're coming to Christ, and this is his offering to God. Yes, yeah. He's offering them back to him. Yeah, very good. So that's your... Can I ask a question? Yes. Who's that, uh, Maddie? Maddie. Yeah, we were late. Um, But I just find that... The language, the aspect interesting in the verb that he says may become acceptable. So it sounds to me like there's a hint of sanctification going on here. Can you comment on that? Well, sanctification is not only positional, but it is an ongoing experience as well. And there might be both elements involved. So I don't know if that's what you're getting at by your question right so he says um and i don't have the greek in front of me i'm wondering it sounds like a subjunctive um and i'm wondering 
is there any conditional on it? Is this a conditional? No. Uh, it's actually perfect passive. Perfect passive. Yes. Right. It's a participle as well. They may become. Okay. So it That's may helpful. not. Yeah, it's a. It's not a verb. Well, it's a verbal idea, but it's a participle. Adjective. Pardon me? It's an adjective. It's a participle. It's a past participle. Yes. Perfect. It's an adjective. Perfect past participle. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, just a closing question. Would Paul commend you like he did the Romans in verse 14 that we started out? Some of the highest praise that you find of Paul anywhere, and it's to the Romans. And that would be our goal, to receive the commendation of godly character, grounded in God's word, and the ability to uh, disciple and counsel those that we have an impact on. Well, Connie says that... Oh, wait a minute, Ray. Can I just interrupt sure, before sure. you start your sentence? This is Mary Lee. Yes. Uh, St. Paul outside the wall was built in the time of Constantinople. Or yes. uh, Constantine. Okay. Sorry. Fourth century. Constantine. Fourth century then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. We're supposed to pray for the Pertzers, so... Father, we thank you for your protection over Sharon. Um while she went through this earthquake, um, we pray for your protection over her belongings as well. Uh, we thank you for your protection over each and every one of us. Um, I think of Janie, and last time her oxygen levels were low at night. So I pray, the Lord, that you are helping her to recover well uh, so that she can sleep at night and still uh, be able to have a healthy body. Father, we thank you for um, the Pertzers and their travels, which quite honestly, they must be exhausted from at this point. Um, but Father, I praise you that um, you are working all things um, for their good, raising up ministry partners. I pray for the ministry they've had here, that they will have been able to uh, open people's uh, hearts and minds to the nation of Guatemala and the ministry they're doing there um, because Nate's teaching actually reaches so many more countries than just Guatemala because of his students. We pray, Lord, for the logistics of their travel still here in the States as well as all the way back to Guatemala. Father, that you would um, prepare them, uh, keep them healthy, and give them safe travels wherever they're going. Father, also you have, as we talk today, you have made each of us a priest and a minister of the gospel. I pray for each of our abilities, not just Norman, um, in his ability to, to rebuke, admonish, however it might come out, uh, this false teacher. Father, that each of us would be able to recognize false teaching when it is put forth, and that we would be able to... Um, I guess, confronted if necessary, uh, and uh, with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray.